As we come to the reading of the Word this morning, I want to simply note I'm going to tack on a few extra verses to our reading. You'll have before you in the bulletin, Luke 24, 50 to 53, but I'm going to go back to verse 44 and read from verse 44 to the end of the chapter. So if you will, follow along with me either in your Bibles or you can wait till I get to that moment in the bulletin and join me in the reading. This is God's Word as we find it in Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we do, right now, give our attention to your word. We want to know you. We want to experience the transformative power of your grace in the gospel right now. We desire to be lifted up, changed, to be brought in closer communion with you, to be conformed into the image of Christ. We pray today through this service and through this reading and now this exposition of your word that you would be glorified in our midst. And that though our feet are firmly rooted here on earth, it may be that we would experience something of the joy of heaven. And though Christ in his physical presence is not with us in this room, indeed he occupies that throne in the heavenlies, it would be our desire that our hearts would be lifted up into that throne room. And that with the eyes of faith, we would behold him in his glory. That we might even hear a bit of the angel's song, singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Lord, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we want most of all to be honored in this moment. And so we know that that is only a work of your grace by your Spirit. There's nothing I can say, nothing I can do. There's nothing any of us in this room can do to make that happen. We are at your mercy. So be mindful of us and be merciful to us and show us Jesus. We ask it in his glorious name. Amen. Well, I'll forewarn you, I've got a cough myself. And um, it sounds as if I'm not the only one in the room 
that does. Now, what that means is it's easier. I didn't mean to point you out, Jonathan, over here to my right. Good to have you back, by the way. We're glad you're here. Um, what happens, though, when I cough is it's really loud for you. So I'm going to do the very best to nurse this water this morning and, and hopefully keep that on the, the low end of things as possible. Well, we've already celebrated um, graduation this morning for Madison and um, also noting it for Abby as well as for, for Holden. And just reminds me of, of the fact that graduation is um, a time where for so many uh, young people, it's their first time to, to begin to leave home. They've come up through those high school years, they've come to the completion of those years, and now they're looking at college or university or workforce or whatever it is their next step is going to be, and they're going to be sent out in many cases from their home, and life will be different from that point on. Many of us can go back to that place. When we walked down that graduation aisle, received that diploma, and the world, as it were, was our oyster waiting before us, we had it by the tail, and then we promptly went into that world, and we realized that the world had us by the tail instead, and it was really disconcerting. The world can be a difficult place. We learn a lot when we strike out on our own. We learn a lot about ourselves when we strike out on our own. You know, there's a whole series of books about this, even in, in ancient uh, literature. I was just thinking yesterday about that whole Trojan cycle of epic poems in ancient Greek literature. And one, of the, one of the lost of those epic poems is called the Nostoi, or it could be translated the Return of the Greeks. It's, a, it's an epic that actually comes right after the story of the sack of Troy, the great you know, Trojan horse going into Troy and the, the warriors inside. You know the story of the Iliad. Many of you have, have read that story before. The, the Nostoi comes after that part in the story and just before the classic Homeric work known as the Odyssey and the story of Odysseus. And the Nostoi we don't have anymore. It's missing. We only have a few references and lines from other works of ancient literature to describe it. But it's, it's actually a story similar to the Odyssey because it talks about a warrior who leaves home to go fight for home and then tries to make his journey back home. And the journey back home is always a difficult journey. In some ways, you think after the war is over that the fighting is done, but in reality, the fight to get back home is sometimes the hardest fight that we ever face. In the Nostoi and in, in Odysseus's story, The Odyssey by Homer, there's all kinds of external and internal obstacles that make it difficult for the warrior to come home after war. We know this from the same kind of stories that we see on, uh, in cinemagraphic display. Stories like Saving Private Ryan, for instance. It's a story about a warrior who goes 
to fight and then must find a way to get back home. But getting back home is almost as bad as the war itself. Or, or stories like, more recently, like American Sniper. When the sniper actually makes it home, but he's not really home. Because the war that he experienced, he brought with him home. The memories, and the heartaches, and the difficulties. And it's almost like that old Thomas Wolfe novel that some of you read in the early part of the 20th uh, century. Not that you were alive in the early part of the 20th century, but you read that book sometime over the course of this past century. The, the, the titles, you can't really go back home again. It's really difficult to get there. Now, when you, when you talk to veterans... We've got Memorial Day coming up, and many of us will be reflecting on this together. And we talk about them fighting for their country. When you really get down to it, they, in, they indeed fought for their country, but it's, it's more affectionate than the term country. The term country has this sense of sort of government or national identity, and yes, that plays a role in it. But when it comes down to it, what they're fighting for is home. They're fighting for home, they're fighting for wives, they're fighting for children, they're fighting for your wives and your husbands and your children. They're fighting for freedoms, they're fighting for a way of life, a way of life that they call home. And, and this is why when they come back home, it can sometimes be quite disconcerting that it's not as you remembered it to be. Or that you've so changed by the experience that you no longer can be the self that you once knew at home. And that can be incredibly hard. It was hard for Odysseus when, when he finally made it home. Well, it was hard for Bilbo Baggins. When he left the Shire and made that long journey and came back home and then, well, he just wasn't really ever quite back home again. But there is someone who left home to fight for home, who made it home again, and is really at home. In fact, there's, there's something in the Nostoy, and something in Odysseus, and something in Save It Private Ryan, and, and something in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings that speaks in many ways to the very core of the human reality, because we are a people who in very real sense were banished from home. Who were banished from home and were in, brought into a warfare that we invited on our own doing through sin. And from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the cross, we were in the midst of that warfare. And the outlying skirmishes of that warfare are still taking place in your heart and my heart today. Even though the victory is won, sometimes there are some lingering battles that still have to be faced. But when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate picture of that. We have a man who is perfectly at home in heaven and earth because, well, he made them. And the dwelling place with, with, with God is the place that he himself deserves to rightly be. And yet, he left that home in order to secure the home that you lost. He, he came here, he was born of a virgin. 
became a man. He walked a faithful life through the attacks of the evil one, the temptations in the wilderness, through the attacks of chief priests and scribes and rulers, through, through the ultimate, the crucifixion, where he faced the cosmic battle of the serpent, the grand enemy, and death, the effects of the curse of our sin upon our lives. And he won. And now in victory over the grave, at the point that we are at in Luke 24, he's making his preparations to go home. That's what he's doing. He's making his preparations to go home. And let me tell you, it's, he's still got a mission in his preparations to go home. Just as all of the other warriors in history have had a mission in their preparations to go home, Jesus has a mission in his preparation to go home. And in fact, there's been a little bit of a stint of time between his resurrection and his ascension. In fact, it looks in this passage, in, in Luke chapter 24, that it happened almost immediately. He was up here in this locked room with the disciples. He appeared to them. He taught them the word and he commissioned them by his grace and told them that they'll be clothed on high with the power of the Spirit. And then we're told in verse 50, then he led them out to Bethany. And it feels like it happened just right after this happened. But the realization is, if you look at Acts chapter 1 verse 3, is that there's, there's a lapse of time between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that lapse of time is critical to the mission of Jesus. In fact, we are told in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 that it's 40 days between the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the ascension of the Lord Jesus. Why didn't he just go right back to heaven? I mean, that would seem like the thing to do. He was resurrected from the grave. He'd won the victory. It was finished. And then he took his time getting back there. He ate some meals. He spoke with his disciples. What was he doing? And what makes this ascension so important to the completion of that mission? Well, I want to look with you at three things briefly this morning. Three purposes that complete the mission for which Jesus came that's tied into this period of 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it leads to why the ascension is so critical. So critical that we have an entire Sunday, this Sunday, devoted to its teaching. And, and the three reasons I want to set before you this morning, and these are by no means the, the three total reasons. They're the three reasons I think are important for us to focus on this morning. The, the first is ministerial. He had a ministerial reason. Another way to say that is he had a, a, a reason to serve. A reason to serve within those four days. But the second reason is a redemptive historical reason. He had a story to complete. He had a story to complete. And then thirdly, the third reason is doxological. He had a worship that he wanted to give us. He had a worship that he wanted to give us, a certain spirit of worship that he wanted to impart to us. So ministerially, he had a purpose to serve. Redemptive historically, he had a story to finish. And thirdly, doxologically, he had a worship to give us. 
worship to give us. Let's look at this ministerial purpose first. And it's the reason I jumped back to verse 44, just to, uh, just to kind of note it. That he, right previous to verses 50 to 53, was teaching the disciples the Word of God, was explaining to them the very, the very center of the gospel. He charged them in the proclamation of being his witnesses to all of the world, and he promised that his Spirit would come to clothe them in power so that they could accomplish the mission that he gave them. That's what he's doing in verses 44 all the way to verse 49. And then I saw in, in chapter, or in verse 50, th- these, these words, he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. I thought, that's interesting. That's really interesting. So he taught them, then he lifted up his hands and he, and he blessed them. And then thirdly, I saw this, verse 51, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. Now, if we wanted to um, just break down verses 44 all the way to 53, I think what we would see is that Jesus is involved in a critical ministry in the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. And, and that essential ministry can be broken down in what we call the three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. The three offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I was to ask you, what are the main offices, occupations, or roles that were given to the religious and the, the civil in the Old Testament who were representatives of God, what three offices would you note? Well, I hope you would note these three. The office of prophet, the office of priest, and the office of king. I hope that you would note those three offices because those three offices were means in which God communicated to his people and represented himself to his people through men. Through men. Those men, prophets of the old, priests of the old, and kings of old, represented the word of God to people, the presence of God to people, and the rule of God to people. Those three offices did those three things when they displayed who God was before the people of the Old Testament. Now, when Jesus came, scholars regularly like to make emphasis of the fact that Jesus inhabited those three offices. And I want you to see right here at the conclusion of Luke, he's giving us a portrait of Jesus' fulfillment of those offices. We see in verses 44 to 49 that he unfolded for them the Word of God. And when he unfolded for them the word of God, he did more than what the prophets could do. He not merely explained and expounded that word. He had the power to actually open up their minds to receive it. He had the power to do what, well, for instance, Jeremiah could not do. Jeremiah was given a mission where he was going to preach the word of God to the people of God. And they were going to listen to him for 40 years. And you know what God said about the ministry of Jeremiah? People of God aren't going to listen to you. You're going to preach the word. And they're not going to hear it. And what we see in Jesus' case is that he is a prophet like Jeremiah, but a prophet that's greater than Jeremiah. He's one who comes and unfolds the word of God from the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or what we call the threefold division of the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, the historical books and the prophets, and this other little section called the writings 
In all of the Old Testament, Jesus unfolds its glory of the things concerning himself, but he goes a step further in saying, I can actually open up your minds to perceive its meaning and implant it deeply within you. We see that Jesus is exercising the role of the prophet here. In the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus, but not only is he doing that, we see that he's a priest here. We see that he's a priest here. Now this is characteristic in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. Now, we do this at the end of the service, don't we? What do we call this? Right? The benediction. Just a fancy word for blessing. Right? When, when the priest went into the tabernacle of the Old Testament, and he offered sacrifices. And in Leviticus chapter 16, the day that is known as the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, the priest would take in the blood of the covenant to sprinkle it upon the Ark of the Covenant, which was the representative of God's presence among his people. As he did that, there would often be the experience of the glory cloud of God that would come and would dwell in the tabernacle in powerful presence. And if the priest lived and didn't die... In the presence of the Lord, you knew that God had accepted the sacrifice. And do you know what would happen? The priest would walk out of the temple with his hands raised with blessing. Why would he do that? It was a symbol. It signified to the people that God is with us and he has accepted the sacrifice that we have brought. He is willing to dwell continuously among us. As the people of God, because a sacrifice has satisfied the wrath of God and has atoned for our sin and offense against Him. As Jesus comes to His ascension with His hands lifted up, blessing His people, He's none other than displaying the fact that He is greater than the, than the priest Aaron. He's greater than the, all of the priests of the Levites collectively. He is a priest of the order of Melchizedek that glorious priestly king, a king that is priest beyond all our imaginings, one who is before one time for all times made a sacrifice that is acceptable in the sight of God, so much so that you didn't have to bring a lamb this morning to sacrifice to be into the presence of God. That already happened once for all, for you and for me. And so as he blesses them, I wonder if number six is on his lips, that great ironic blessing that the Lord would bless you and keep you that his face would shine upon you that the glory of his countenance would be lifted upon you and that he would give you peace this was the experience of the of the disciples and they would have known they would have known intimately he's he's our priest and then and then notice as our priest we're told that as he's blessing you get this sense that the blessing continues as he rises we're told in very simple language, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And as he goes into heaven, do you know what's happening? Well, if you look at Acts chapter 1, we're told that a cloud comes and receives him. Oh, well, that's our, that's our picture. We, we know about this cloud. 
This cloud that would come over and over into the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament that would again display for us the fact that God is dwelling with his people. Jesus disappeared into the cloud, we're told, and immediately was ushered into the dimension of the presence of God. And we're told in Philippians chapter 2, even as we read earlier, that though he was humbled as a servant, he was exalted to the right hand of the Father who is in heaven. And right now, he was received through that glorious coronation service and made king of heaven and earth. And so what do we see? We see that Jesus here is a greater David. He's greater than all of the kings of Israel. He's greater than Solomon. Because his temple that he has created is greater than the temple of Solomon. This Jesus has come and he has ministerially revealed himself to the disciples. And think of how badly they needed this. Haven't we seen throughout this entire narrative how royally confused the disciples have been about everything that Jesus says and does? We've seen it page after page, but even here in Luke chapter 24, we've seen it verse after verse. Jesus shows up, they're scared, they're frightened, they're confused, they have questions, they're bewildered. And so what did Jesus do in the 40 days leading up to his ascension? He ministered to them. He ministered to them as prophet. He unfolded their eyes to the word of God and he gave them understanding of the scriptures. He ministered to them as priest. He gave them his blessing and strengthened them by the power of his might. What did he do? He established his kingdom rule in and over their lives. And as he stands on the cusp of ascension that day, at the finished work of what it is that he has come to do, we can see that Jesus has been the consummate minister. And that's continually how he's ministering to us. Do you see, even as he's in the heavenly places today, he's coming to you in the word today. And he's speaking to you. And if you are understanding the scriptures today, it is because of the power of God that is meeting you, that right now Jesus' hands are still lifted, as it were, over blessing over your life. And he's carrying you from one degree of glory unto the next. And his rule right now in heaven, despite the fact that your life may be flying apart in a million different directions. Jesus has it perfectly scripted by the sovereign decree of God himself, and he is one if he rules over all and he's on your side. It works out really well for you in the end. These are incredible comforts that are given to us on the day of ascension. They were incredible comforts for the disciples that day of Jesus' ascension. So he came to minister, but he also came to finish a story, a redemptive historical story. And I, I note this from Acts chapter 1, verse 3, where Luke tells us that Jesus stayed on the earth between the resurrection and the ascension those 40 days. Now listen, that's not arbitrary. That's not arbitrary. Those 40 days are not just Jesus going, I think I'll stay 40 days. It's, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. It's meant to speak volumes to us. Because in the scriptures, the numerical identification of 40 is significant. From the beginning of scriptures to the end. If we look in the Old Testament, we know in Genesis chapter 7, God flooded the world and what? He caused it to rain 40 days and 40 nights. After Moses killed the Egyptian and fled into Midian, he spent, we're told, 40 years in the desert tending the flocks. Moses also was the one who spent 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai when the people of God got so worried about him. 
Uh, Moses interceded for them during that time. The Israelites, you'll remember, took 40 days to spy out the land of Canaan. And the Israelites, of course, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Some of the others that you might not think about, Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David arrived to slay him. Elijah fled from Jezebel for 40 days and 40 nights until he ended up in Mount Horeb. Now, I cut out a few, but you're getting the point. And interestingly, almost every single one of the references, significant references to 40 days in the Old Testament, have something to do with trial and testing. Whether it's David and Goliath, it's Moses interceding, it's seeking out the land. There's there's levels of trial and testing and revelation and completion of a mission or judgment. Something along those lines is here. And hasn't that been what Jesus has just passed through? As he awaits this great ascension, he's at the end of his earthly ministry. He's passing through the trial. He's passed through the judgment. He's at the end of his testing. He's right on the cusp of completing everything that it is that the Father has given to him. And like a new and better Moses, and a new and better Elijah, and a new and better David, Jesus at the very outset of his ministry was tempted for how long? Forty days. Before Jesus began his ministry, where did he go? Into the wilderness. How long was he there? 40 days. What happened when he was in the wilderness? He was tempted. He was tried. He was just a picture of what has happened over and over and over through a cycle in the Old Testament. And now as he comes to the end of his ministry, what happens? Well, he has 40 days. 40 days of what? To finish the mission. It's an envelope. It's a closing. It's it's, a... it's, it's the realization that he's showing us that he's come to, to end what it is that he began. It's a way of saying, I started with 40 days of testing, now I'm finishing with 40 days of testing, and then I'm ascending into my glory. You know, the Bible does this a lot, and that's why I think you need to see that this is a part of a story that God is telling, a redemptive historical story, and it all is meaningful, and it's all, it all matters. I want you to think with me at the very beginning of the book of Genesis for just a second so you can see the beautiful narrative of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, we see the creation of the heavens and the earth, don't we? In Genesis chapter 2, we see the foundation of the building block of the human institution of marriage. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the entrance of the great serpent, the evil one, Satan himself, and we see the fall of mankind. Now, you may have a question, and it's a question that I entertained for a long time in my life. How do I know that Revelation is the last book in the Bible? How do I know that Revelation is the last book in the Bible? Well, let me, let me tell you how we know, and there's no more Revelation for us to wait for. It's because God, similar to what he did with the 40 days on the front of Jesus' ministry and the 40 days on the back of Jesus' ministry, the Bible itself is organized to introduce us to the themes that it's going to deal with throughout the book and close those themes by the end of the book. And so let me show you how it does this. In Revelation chapter 20, what's the focus? Well, I don't expect you to pull that out of your hat this morning just by asking you, but let me give you an indication. If you looked at Revelation 20, what you would see would be the defeat of Satan. In other words, the Satan who entered in Genesis 3 is defeated in Revelation 20. And then what do you see in Revelation 21? Well, you see a marriage. 
You see, a marriage between Christ and his church, a a redemption of the glimmer of the marriage that we saw back in Genesis chapter 2. And what do we see in Revelation chapter 22? The new heavens and the new earth, a new creation that mirrors Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the creation that God had made. And we go, oh, I see it. All of the themes that started this grand tale have been brought to completion at the end of this grand tale. And it gives us the confidence of knowing that as Jesus is the one who has walked out this story as the interpretive center of the Old Testament and the interpretive fulfillment of the new, that as we look at the defeat of Satan in Revelation 20, who defeated him? Christ. As we look at the marriage of Revelation 21, whose marriage is it? Christ. As we look at the Revelation 22 and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, whose new heavens and new earth is it? Christ. What we find is that the themes that began at the beginning of the Bible are brought into beautiful fulfillment at the end of the Bible, and Jesus is the key to the close of the story. That's part of what Jesus is doing here in those 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. But finally... Jesus has come for a doxological purpose. And I hope the doxological purpose is beginning to stew in your heart right now. That there is a worship that as you begin to see the beauty of how it is that the Word is unfolded and what it is that God is doing in the Word, that a worship begins to rise up within your heart. And let me tell you, it's exactly what happened to the disciples. I want you to see how strange this is. Look at verse 52 and 53. Speaking of the disciples, this is what we read. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, why is this strange? Because the disciples never have understood anything in Luke 24. I mean, every time we've come to them, they've been confused, bewildered, saddened sorrowing. And now Jesus, in the moment that he's being lifted up and taken into heaven, where you would think a tear would be running down their eyes and they'd be a pitiful mess there in Bethany. What do we have? They're leaping for joy. And you're thinking, what happened right after the resurrection? They're, they're incredibly bewildered and saddened and ready to give up on this, this Christ. And now when he's leaving them, they're jumping for joy. They're in the midst of worship and continually attending the temple with blessing. Every single day, what happened? Well, the ministry of Jesus worked. His prophetic and priestly and now kingly authority and rule over their lives began to take hold. And they knew that as he raised up into the heavenlies with his hands held high as he was blessing them, that he was going to occupy the eternal throne of heaven. He was now going to bring to completion what he began when he came. And that one day soon they would be able to await his glorious return. And here's what I want to do just by way of of closing. I want to note for you five truths that give us a reason to worship this morning that come out of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to run through these quickly. I want you to see first a proof. The ascension of Christ proves that the Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It it proves that the Father in heaven approves of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. We know this from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul writes this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Do you see, that's what's happened in the ascension. That's what's happened in the ascension, is that when they saw Jesus begin to lift up in the heavens, they said, the Father's accepting Him. It's just as when the priest came out with his hands opened and the crowd with bated breath said, the Lord accepted the sacrifice. It's the same experience. And this morning as you sit in worship today on Ascension Sunday, it's as if Christ is coming to you with his hands raised and blessing on his lips. And you anticipating watching those hands rise and hearing potentially those glorious, ironic blessing words from Numbers chapter 6 and worship begins to be the response of the people of God. But secondly, we learn this. The ascension of Christ is the pledge that the Father will accept us to. Do you see, not only has the Father accepted Christ, but He's accepted us in Christ. If we have trusted in Christ, what that means is that His merits and His acceptance is ours in Him. And so much so that your identity as a person is not locked up in how well you've done or how poor you've done. So that you can be despairing today if you've had a bad week or you can be prideful today because you've had a good week. Instead, you have a great week every week because Jesus is the pledge. Jesus is the pledge of your identity and your stands before Almighty God. Every week is a great week. Every week is a great week. Even the hardest weeks, even the most terrible weeks are great weeks because he is the pledge of our acceptance before the Father as well. But thirdly, it's this. The ascension of Christ is the beginning of Jesus' preparation to bring us home. He tells us this in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you that when I come back to get you, I will take you to the place that I have prepared and you will live with me forever with joy. How amazing is that? It's the beginning of Jesus' preparation. Now, let me tell you, Jesus has been gone for a couple thousand years, so this is going to be some kind of house he's building. If length of time has anything to do with how great this place is going to be, then it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. The Lord Jesus Christ is right now laboring to create a suitable, glorious, fitting, majestic habitation that will perfectly meet our needs and represent God's glory for all eternity. That's what he's doing. He's preparing that for you. He's preparing that for you. And the, the disciples saw that. There's joy in their hearts. Fourthly, the ascension of Christ set in motion the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It's set in motion the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. One of the most, well, one of the most amazing scriptures is John 16, and we're, we're tempted to not even believe what Jesus says here, and when I read it, you'll see why. Listen to what he says. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And you think, when is it ever to our advantage that Jesus goes away? That just doesn't seem right to say that. But then he continues, for if I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Because they do not believe in me. Jesus is saying that the measure of the Holy Spirit that has been granted to us in Pentecost, which we will actually celebrate next week together 
as a church because he told the disciples to stay in Jerusalem until they were clothed with power from on high. That's the indication of Pentecost. That the Spirit who comes and dwells with us and empowers us now, Jesus is saying, is better than him being with us in person in John 16. Now, I don't think any of us want to say, really? I mean, surely that can't be right. Well, I'm going to go with Jesus on this one. He, he said it's better in John 16 for the Spirit to be granted than for him to be in the, per, in, in the presence right now with us. Why? Because he's got to go prepare a place for us. Why? He's got to go intercede for us. He's got to go build his kingdom. Why? Because we need the Spirit who's going to convict of concerning, concerning sin and advance the kingdom of God through the gospel. And I don't know, but there was a small band of believers in that first century. And guess what? There's a few more today. And there's been millions and millions throughout history. I think the Spirit has done quite a good job carrying forth His work. But then finally, I want you to see this, that the fifth and final truth is this. The ascension of Christ is a preview of what everyone will see on the day of Jesus' return. It's a preview. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that the way in which Jesus departs is the way in which He will return. That's why we talk about the heavens opening up as the scriptures talks about in Jesus descending as a king coming into his kingdom, as a king would come in in the Old Testament who would come towards the gates of a city and there would be throngs of people that would welcome them as they come back from war, as they come back in the spirit of, of victory. Because when Jesus comes back, we're told that he comes back on a white horse. He, he comes back in victory. He comes back as king. He comes back as one who has completed what it is that he began. Who's one who comes into the fullness of his kingdom. He has inaugurated and established that kingdom in the cross and the resurrection. And through the ascension, he is bringing that kingdom to its consummation. But it won't be until Jesus returns that the fullness of that kingdom will be established. And as we said at the very beginning of the service this morning, it's not a question of whether we will acknowledge Christ as king. It's a question of where, we'll be, where will we be when we do? Where will we be when we do acknowledge him as king? Because the scripture is very plain. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And let me give you a little insight into that word every in the Greek language. It means every knee will bow. It, it's not whether you will, it's when you will and who you will be when you do. You may do so either begrudgingly, but with no ability to resist, or you will do so gloriously and willingly because you've never seen anything more beautiful in the world. But how you bow and how you confess makes all the difference in the world. You know, that word nostoi, we talked about at the beginning of the sermon today, is connected to the word nostalgia. You can hear it. And that word nostalgia today carries a sense of being sentimental or romantic. But historically, that was not the case with the word nostalgia. The word is actually a compound word between, between two different Greek words. The, the, the word nostos and the word alos. 
Nostos means homecoming. And alos means ache. You see, the word for nostalgia at its core, apart from the sentimental and romantic attachments that we have today, means to ache for a homecoming. That's, what, that's part of what ascension is about today. It's part about giving into and being aware of the fact that we've not yet returned home. And the, and the returning home is almost as hard for some of us as the battle itself. And some of us are in the midst of that battle. But we labor with our personal battles and the life battles of today with the reality of Jesus' victory yesterday. Motivating us and living us, informing us and guiding us. That we live as a people who fight from victory. A people who know that the grave has already met its match. And knowing that the one who controls us and controls the world is on the throne and he loves us. And he will always do what is in our best interest. John writes this in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, the home of God is with man. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have much to look forward to. In just a matter of days, though it may seem long to some of us, we will be home in the presence of the Lord, should the Lord tarry. But in God's good time, he will return, and he will make for us a home of which we ache for. The reason why maybe you and I struggle at times to be at home at home is because we're not yet there. But we will be. Soon enough, let's live that way. Father in heaven, we ask you to use the ache of that home for home in our lives to motivate us forward. And that we wouldn't allow that ache to derail us into trying to cobble together a false home here. But we would allow that ache to cast our eyes forward to the home that you're preparing for us, Lord Jesus. We long for it this morning. And we ask for your grace to meet us in it. Please, walk with us until we get there. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.